Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 83. This show is entitled, People Who Can See in Pitch Darkness. But first up this week, an article from the io9.com website. French archaeologists have discovered a beautifully preserved, deformed skull. Normally, intentionally elongated or flattened skulls are associated with ancient Mesoamerican cultures. But this exquisite specimen, which dates back some one and a half thousand years, was recently found at a dig in Alsace, France. There's an industrial park in Pays de Saint-Odile, France, that's about to be developed prompting archaeologists to perform a major search over seven and a half acres. It resulted in the discovery of a whopping number of artefacts in human and animal remains from Neolithic, Gallic, Gallo-Roman and Merovingian societies. That's over 6,000 years worth of stuff. The history blog does a good roundup of the various items found, including a Bronze Age grave containing both children and dogs, Gallic glass ornaments, coins, pottery and a Gallo-Roman bathing complex. But the Merovingian finds were among the most fascinating. The Merovingians were a Salon Frankish dynasty that ruled the Franks region of France for 300 years, from the 5th to 8th century. In an acropolis containing 18 west-east burials, a woman was found buried with a rich assortment of grave goods, like gold pins, two chatelaines or chains suspended from a belt that held practical objects for household use, 
a silver mirror, beads of glass and amber, a comb made from deer antler, a set of tweezers, and an ear scoop, which were popular at the time. Needless to say, this was a very important person, most likely a very high-ranking woman. But what really identified her as a well-born individual was her ovoid skull, the result of intentional cranial deformation, the practice of binding the head of infants with straps or cradle boards to elongate and flatten their skulls. This was practiced extensively in Europe, Africa, Asia and, as noted, South America. And from the history blog, this little excerpt. This practice distinguished the elites and affirmed their social status. Similar graves, which are usually isolated, have been discovered in northern Gaul, Germany and Eastern Europe. They are accompanied by abundant grave goods. Thus they appear to be the graves of high dignitaries in their families, of Eastern origin incorporated into the Roman army during the Great Migrations. The Aubernais Necropolis is one of the few large groups discovered in France. It is the first evidence of the presence of an eastern community over a long period of time in Alsace at the end of the Roman Empire. And if you visit the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 82 of the Mysteries Abound show notes, there is a photograph of the skull itself and a reconstruction of a woman with an artificial cranial deformation, just to show you what it would look like in real life. Sitting at speeds known only to few, incredible distance we traveled us to. Only you'd been there, you'd know what I mean. If only you'd been there, if only you'd see. From the www.telegraph.co.uk website, an article by Jasper Copping. Research suggests big cats may roam the wild. Scientific research provides tantalising evidence as to the existence of big cats stalking the British countryside. The stuff of rural legend for decades, apparent sightings of big cats stalking the British countryside have been dismissed as fantasy or hoax. But now a scientist has uncovered tantalising evidence pointing towards the existence of such creatures living in the wild. 
Dr Andrew Hemmings, Senior Lecturer in Animal Science at the Royal Agricultural University in Sirenchester, has been investigating the phenomenon for the past year and his still ongoing research has already identified the remains of some wild animals apparently eaten by creatures larger than any of the country's known carnivores. The project has involved an analysis of 20 skeletal animal remains recovered from across Gloucestershire and other nearby counties. The bones have been provided by volunteers, farmers and landowners and were selected for further investigation because they had some form of unusual teeth markings on them or the circumstances of the remains led to an indication that they may have been killed by a big cat. The teeth markings left on the bones were analysed to establish which animals had feasted on them. In a quarter of the cases, it was found that the tooth pit indentations, markings made by canine teeth as they clamp on bones, caused by something larger than species known to exist in the wild, such as badgers and foxes. However, as dogs' teeth can make similar indentations, a further analysis was carried out to look for markings made by carnassial teeth, used for shearing flesh and bone. In a big cat, these are far wider apart than in a dog, so the analysis allows dogs to be discounted as culprits. In 17 cases, there were insufficient markings to make a judgement, but in the remaining three, they are not only clearly visible, but indicate that big cats, rather than domestic dogs, are responsible. Dr Hemmings is now looking for more samples to build up evidence before publishing research in the Journal of Archaeological Science. At the moment, there are three I have found which are weighing in favour of the cat, so it is very tentatively pointing that way, he added. All three are certainly wider than you would expect to find in a dog imprint, but we need to let the sample size build before we have anything approaching a statistical basis. The three bones were all passed to Dr Hemmings within the last three months. Two were from Psychodea, one a lower jaw and the other a pelvis, both found in Heathland in Dorset, along the country's Jurassic coastline, while the third was a lower jaw from a wild boar found in West Gloucestershire. As well as more bones, he is also trying to source fresher carcasses through his network of volunteers, which may yield DNA evidence of any animal that has feasted on them. Both Gloucestershire and Dorset have been previously identified as areas with high levels of big cat sightings. In one of the most recent, Lee Doney said that she and her children had been stalked by such a creature while picking blackberries in Rodborough near Stroud in September. In Dorset, police say all reported sightings are taken seriously and have issued advice for people not to approach any such creatures. Big cat reports have occurred across the UK for several years and in some areas have spawned legends such as the so-called Beast of Bodmin in the southwest. Reports are lodged by Natural England, which investigates some cases. Although none have turned up proof, the head of the unit responsible has previously said he believes the creatures do exist. 
One theory is that several large species, such as panthers, leopards and lynx, were deliberately released into the wild by their owners in the 1970s, after the introduction of the Dangerous Wild Animals Act, which placed restrictions on the keeping of certain species. According to experts, many of the sightings have hinted at the existence of either a puma or panther. Adult males can grow to almost eight feet from nose to tail. Mr Hemmings said that if they are in the wild, he believes they could be surviving on a diet of small rodents, such as rabbits, as well as larger mammals like deer. You can understand why they might gain a foothold and establish themselves and reproduce. I don't know whether they are out there. I have an empirical mindset, so we would need to have proof. At the end of the day, science needs a body. It would be nice to have an entire carcass of a big cat, but they are amazingly elusive. Even on somewhere like Vancouver Island, where these things occur, there are people who have never seen one. Sightings are coming in on a monthly basis, and some are very plausible. There does seem to be something going on in the background, so there is a hypothesis to address here. On July 23, 1924, Boston was suffering from a brutal heatwave. The evening temperature hovered in the high 80s, when the famed magician Harry Houdini trudged up to the fourth floor seance room at 10 Lime Street. With him were O.D. Munn, editor of Scientific American, and an esteemed panel of scientists. They had come to witness the psychic feats of the nation's most credible spirit medium, a pretty 36-year-old flapper with blue eyes and a bob. From the www.mentalfloss.com website, an article by Robert Love. Houdini's greatest trick, debunking medium Minor Crandon. Her name was Minor Crandon. Followers called her Marjorie. Detractors knew her as the Blonde Witch of Lime Street. And she was renowned for conjuring the voice of her dead brother Walter, whose spirit rapped out messages, tipped tables, and even sounded trumpets. Even by ghost standards, Walter was unfriendly, answering questions and quoting scripture in a gruff, disembodied voice. Marjorie, by contrast, was charming and attractive, at least when she wasn't showing off her most convincing psychic talent, extruding a slithery, viscous substance called ectoplasm from her orifices. Photos show this otherworldly substance flowing from her nose and ears, but mostly it emerged from beneath a sheer kimono, like a string of entrails an ectomorphic hand that Walter used to carry out his commands. 
Today we remember the era's jazz, speakeasies and glitz, but the 20s were also the zenith of America's obsession with the spirit world. Reeling from losing an estimated 15 million people in the Great War and 21 million more to the Spanish flu pandemic, people were searching for ways to connect with the dead. Spirit guides emerged to help the bereaved, usually for hefty fees. And as reputable magazines and newspapers increased their coverage of paranormal phenomena, mediums became rock stars. Marjorie herself had become a messiah to hundreds of thousands of Americans. In the summer of 1924, Marjorie occupied the red-hot centre in the raging national debate over spiritualism an 80-year-old religious movement that centred around the possibility of communicating with the dead. The most famous of its 14 million believers was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries and a man of impeccable reputation. Witnessing a seance in his London home, he became convinced of Marjorie's supernatural powers. Her refusal to be compensated for her miracles only added to her credibility. It wasn't long before Doyle had recommended her to the editors of Scientific American, which was offering a $2,500 prize to the first medium who could verifiably demonstrate to its six-man investigative committee a visual psychic manifestation. This was no fly-by-night group of spook hunters. Scientific Americans J. Malcolm Byrd chaired the committee, which included psychologist William McDougall of Harvard, former MIT physicist Daniel Comstock, and two members of the Society of Psychical Research, Hereward Carrington and Walter Prince. Byrd and Carrington had already examined Marjorie more than 20 times and were ready to hand over the money. The New York Times reported the development with a straight face. Marjorie passes all psychic tests scientists find no trickery in scores of seances with Boston Medium. But Houdini, who'd suggested creating the panel after Scientific American approached him to investigate spiritualism, had yet to offer his approval. When he learned the committee was prepared to endorse Marjorie, he was outraged. Having already exposed the tricks of other celebrity mediums, Houdini was sure the committee was about to be duped once more. He cancelled his shows and headed for Boston. Marjorie greeted the panel and took her seat within a three-sided Chinese screen. The lights dimmed. Soon enough, an eerie whistling filled the room. On cue, the spirit of Walter whispered his arrival, even touching Houdini on the inside of his right leg. After a break, he ordered an electric bell enclosed in a wooden box be brought to Houdini's feet. Then Walter levitated a megaphone and boomed, have Houdini tell me where to throw it. Towards me, Houdini said, and the megaphone flew through the air and crashed in front of him. That was just the beginning. Throughout the evening, Walter produced a sequence of metaphysical spectacles, ringing the bell box on command and tipping over the wooden screen. Houdini had done his homework. 
He knew that Dr. Leroy Crandon, Marjorie's husband, always sat on her right. A Harvard-educated surgeon, Crandon was her greatest promoter, often showing visitors nude photographs of his wife in séance délicte. Houdini also guessed correctly that he would be seated at her left in the circle, with hands joined, feet and legs touching. In preparation for the evening, Houdini wore a tight bandage under his right knee all day. It was so painful it made his skin tender, even to the slightest touch. The heightened sensitivity paid off. He could feel Marjorie twist and flex in the dark as she moved her left ankle slightly to get to the bell box under the table. Later he felt her shift again to tip the Chinese screen with her foot. The flying megaphone stumped Houdini for a few hours, but he eventually figured out that Marjorie had placed it on her head, dunce-cap style, with a momentarily free hand. She then jerked her head in his direction to send it crashing to the floor. I've got her, he said when the evening was over. All fraud, every bit of it. One more sitting and I will be ready to expose everything. A second seance at a Boston hotel featured a levitating table. Houdini reached out in the dark and found Marjorie's head lifting the table from beneath. He again felt her legs move as she reached to ring the bell box. The slickest ruse I've ever detected, Houdini said later in something close to admiration. But when he announced his findings to the committee, he was asked to hold off on a public denunciation. The committee was conflicted. When it refused to award the prize after several additional seances, the spiritualists became enraged, as did the spirit. Houdini, you goddamned son of a bitch, Walter roared. I put a curse on you now that will follow you every day for the rest of your short life. Bert and Carrington, still firmly under Marjorie's seductive spell, continued to report that she had supernatural powers. In October, Scientific American published an article that described the committee as hopelessly divided. The dithering angered Houdini. In November, he published a pamphlet called Houdini Exposes the Tricks Used by the Boston Medium Marjorie, complete with drawings of how she produced her manifestations. She certainly was clever in her manoeuvring to pull the wool over the eyes of the committee men, he said, admitting the ingenuity of her techniques as he debunked their metaphysical nature. Houdini's pamphlet humiliated Marjorie, but he wasn't done yet. The scourge of spiritualism wanted to make the religion disappear. Before long, Houdini was reproducing Marjorie's so-called miracles to great laughter in performances across the nation. Marjorie didn't get the Scientific American Prize, but Houdini's efforts didn't slow her down. Dr. Crandon pushed his wife to continue holding seances inviting all doubters to the room at 10 Lime Street. In 1925, the Harvard faculty formed an investigative team which sceptically witnessed new manifestations of her talents, including a luminous jumping paper donut. One investigator reported that he'd witnessed Marjorie reaching beneath her dress 
and pulling out strands of fake ectoplasm, which appear to be butcher's offal. Meanwhile, Marjorie's supporters went on the offensive, threatening to beat Houdini to a pulp and rooting for his demise. The escape artist continued to defy death in his stage show, locked, bolted or chained in coffins, submerged in water or buried under six feet of sand, each time he escaped. But Walter, Marjorie's angry spirit guide, knew better. In August 1926, the spectre proclaimed that the end was near, Houdini will be gone by Halloween, he said. In fact, Houdini died in agony on the afternoon of October 31, 1926, from septic poisoning. Throughout his career, Houdini had offered his steely abs to anyone who cared to take a shot. But when a student from Montreal threw a punch before Houdini could tense up, the blow ruptured his appendix, leading to a fatal infection. Houdini had worked hard to debunk Marjorie, but in a strange twist of fate, it was Marjorie who had the last word. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle lived on for four more years and died a believer. The author's spirit appeared to Marjorie often as she soldiered on through the depths of the Great Depression and her own alcoholism. But Houdini's debunking had taken its toll. By the time she died at her house on Lime Street in 1941, her reputation and the spiritual movement were in tatters. One of Walter's fingerprints turned out to be her dentist's, and one of her greatest supporters, Malcolm Bird, admitted to helping produce Walter's actions at seances. But the fascination with Marjorie remained. Even on her deathbed, a psychic researcher showed up, hoping for a confession, or at least a hint of how she pulled off her most famous tricks. Why don't you guess, she laughed bitterly. It was clear that the blonde witch of Lime Street wasn't done toying with them yet. You'll all be guessing for the rest of your lives. From the rpmcollections.wordpress.com website, Spring-Heeled Jack Comes to Brighton. On the 13th of April, 1838, the Brighton Gazette informed its readers that a local gardener had been attacked by a mysterious creature. The attack took place between 9 and 10pm in what would now be described as the Round Hill area of Brighton. 
At the time, this area represented the northernmost outskirts of the town and was largely undeveloped, apart from some affluent housing on Rose Hill that had been built in the 1820s. The attack took place within the garden of one of these houses. A growling beast in the shape of a bear or some other four-footed animal climbed up on the garden wall and even though the wall was protected by broken glass, ran across it. Before the terrified gardener could escape, the creature leapt down and chased the man and his equally terrified dog. After toying with his victims for some time, the monster abruptly scaled the wall and vanished. This odd story was published a week after the attack. Although there was no mention of it by the Gazette's local rival, the Brighton Herald, the story gathered national interest. The following day, the Gazette piece was reprinted in full by the Times. Why did this obscure local story achieve such prominence? The reason was that the attack was blamed on a notorious figure who had already been terrifying London in the early months of 1838 and would go on to make unwelcome appearances throughout the 19th century. Spring-Heeled Jack And this is a transcription from the Times article from the 14th of April, 1838. Spring-Heeled Jack has, it seems, found his way to the Sussex coast. On Friday evening between 9 and 10 o'clock, he appeared, as we are informed, to a gardener near Rose Hill, in the shape of a bear or some other four-footed animal, and having first attracted attention by a growl, then mounted the garden wall, covered as it was with broken glass, and ran along it upon all fours, to the great terror and consternation of the gardener, who began to think it was time to escape. He was accordingly about to leave the garden when Spring-Heeled Jack leapt from the wall and chased him for some time. The dog was called, but slunk away, apparently as much as his terrified master. Having amused himself for some time with the trembling gardener, Spring-Heeled Jack scaled the wall and made his exit. The fellow may probably amuse himself in this way once too often. If you have heard of Spring-Heeled Jack, it is likely that you will have a mental image of a character that is very different to that described by the Brighton Gazette. Later in the century, Jack was often depicted in Penny Dreadfuls and other forms of illustrated popular literature. Spring-Heeled Jack is usually portrayed as a devil-like figure, tall and thin, often wearing a cape, and more human than animal. No two sightings of Jack were ever alike, and he was often described with varying features, such as claws, cold and clammy hands, glowing eyes, and even the ability to breathe fire. The only unifying feature among these reports was that Jack could jump unnaturally great heights. The Gazette reports seem to have been the first sighting of Spring-Heeled Jack outside of London. But given the conventional descriptions of him, it may seem puzzling that the Brighton case was attributed to Jack at all. However, most of the familiar illustrations of Spring-Heeled Jack were produced decades after the Brighton attack. 
the Gazette story is actually remarkably consistent with some of the earliest reports of Jack. The best source of information on Springheeled Jack can be found in a long and extensively researched article by Mike Dash. According to Dash, the first sightings of Jack date from the autumn of 1837, but they did not appear in newspapers until December of that year. Descriptions of Jack from these early encounters vary wildly, but he was commonly compared to a ghost, devil or bear. The demonic image of Jack seems to date from reports of two similar attacks on young women in late February 1838. Jane Alsop and Lucy Scales. The Alsop case in particular was widely reported and seems to have been the chief trigger for an outbreak of Spring-Heeled Jack panic in London. The Brighton case harks back to the earliest reports, but it is also in keeping with an unusual intervention by the Lord Mayor of London at the beginning of the year. On the 8th of January 1838, Sir John Cohen, the Lord Mayor, made public the contents of a letter he had received several days previously. The letter, as reported in the Times the following day, claimed that the recent mysterious attacks were the words of vicious aristocratic pranksters. And this is from the letter. It appears that some individuals of, as the writer believes, the highest ranks of life, have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion, name as yet unknown. That he durst not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three different disguises, a ghost, a bear and a devil, and moreover that he will not enter a gentleman's gardens for the purpose of alarming the inmates of a house. The wager has, however, been accepted and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving several ladies of their senses. At one house he rang the bell, and on the servant coming to open the door, this worse than brute stood in no less dreadful figure than a spectre clad most perfectly. The consequence was that the poor girl immediately swooned, and has never from that moment been in her senses, but on seeing any man screams out most violently, Take him away! There are two ladies, which your Lordship will regret to hear, who have husbands and children, who are not expected to recover, but likely to become burdens to their families. Two days later, the Times reported that the Lord Mayor had received further letters confirming the rumour, and in the quoted extracts, the description of Springheeled Jack as a bear occurs again. One anonymous writer, who claims to have heard further details about the culprits, fears that the bet is that the monster shall kill six women in some given time, and that he has been seen in St John's Wood, clad in mail and as a bear. Another writer named J.C. claimed the following. The villain mentioned as appearing in the guise of a ghost, bear and devil has been within the last week or so repeatedly seen at Lewisham and Blackheath. So much indeed he has frightened the inhabitants of those peaceful districts that women and children durst not stir out of their houses after dark. And that's from the Times on the 11th of January 1838. These early reports are consistent with the tale told by the Brighton gardener 
the location of the Brighton attack may also be significant. Spring-heeled Jack's early appearances all took place in the less populous villages surrounding London, and the Round Hill area was also on the fringes of the town. With the London report still fresh in the minds of the local press, this explains why the attack was readily identified as the work of Spring-heeled Jack. It also explains why the Gazette was so quick to claim that the attack was the work of violent hoaxes. But why, after his early escapades in London, would Spring-heeled Jack have made a trip to the south coast? I think there are two broad explanations for this. The first depends upon whether the attacks were ever the work of a single being or group of men. Many attacks on young women were attributed to Jack in spite of little evidence to support this. And Dash cites several cases of feeble attempts by copycat pranksters who were caught by the police. It is possible that the spring-heeled Jack attacks were discreet assaults that had become connected by popular rumour and eventually inflated by newspapers into an early media myth. But if there were a core number of attacks by one or more people, as the authorities suspected at the time, who was responsible? Although Jack often appeared in ghostly or demonic form during the 1837-38 attacks, the contemporary press was keen to dismiss the idea that he may be a supernatural being. This was probably deliberate and may have been a result of political or police pressure to try to prevent mass panic. More recently, Jack has been cited by ufologists as evidence of a visit by an extraterrestrial being, on the basis that his extraordinary abilities, such as leaping great heights, could not have been faked by humans. However, if we accept that more worldly explanations are more plausible, it seems likely that Spring-Heeled Jack was the work of one or more hoaxes. The 8th of January letter revealed by the Lord Mayor suggested that the culprits were noblemen, and a wealthy young man with few responsibilities may have had the time and resources to carry out the hoax. A 1977 book by Peter Haining identified the Marquis of Waterford, Henry Beresford, as the man responsible. Waterford was a notorious violent prankster, and is a plausible suspect, but there is no hard evidence to support this theory. Indeed, the identity of Spring-Heeled Jack, like that of other infamous Jack of the 19th century, Jack the Ripper, is unlikely to ever be proven. But if a wealthy aristocrat like Waterford were responsible, Brighton is precisely the sort of place such a man may have visited. Brighton's fame as a health resort since the 1750s had always been closely followed by its reputation as a place of pleasure, and by the late 1830s it remained a favoured town for fashionable visitors. Perhaps Jack, wary that he might be caught in London, decided to take his props for a trip to an unsuspecting seaside. This is pure speculation, of course, but the repeated assertion that Jack was the work of an ennobled miscreant is consistent with the class of visitors who came to Brighton at this time. The second explanation is that Spring-Heeled Jack's appearance in Brighton is a reflection of the town's relationship with London. Although the description of Brighton as a London-by-the-sea is often regarded as a modern phrase, 
it dates back to the early 19th century. The need to accommodate and attract fashionable visitors to the town required the comforts and pleasures of the capital to be replicated in Brighton. As people flocked to the town looking for work and business opportunities, Brighton grew rapidly. In 1801 the population of the town was just over 7,000 people. By 1831 it had over 40,000 inhabitants, a five-fold growth in just 30 years. Brighton was changing rapidly in the early 19th century and transforming into a sophisticated urban settlement. Considered in this context, Spring-Heeled Jack may have simply been another cultural import from the capital. It is possible that a strange but vague story from the fringes of the town was reinterpreted according to the spreading legend. The attacker was labelled another tourist coming to the town, a more sinister sort of fashionable visitor. Spring-Heeled Jack's brief appearance in Brighton may tell us more about Brighton than it does about Jack. It is also possible that the Brighton sighting was a publicity stunt. The Brighton's Gazette report is comparatively non-sensational, but we know now very little of the origin of the story. The report suggests that it has not come directly from the victim of the attack. It may seem odd that a seaside resort would try to promote itself through the presence of a vicious monster. Although we know from studies of dark tourism that sights of death, suffering and tragedy attract visitors. It is certainly curious that less than two weeks after his appearance in Brighton, a rival seaside resort, South End, claimed that Jack had appeared there. On the 28th of April 1838, the County Herald and Morning Advertiser ran the headline, Spring-Heeled Jack Comes to South End, reporting that a young woman had been attacked on the cliffs by a gentleman. Dash notes that this case has little in common with the modus operandi of the real assailant and that it was a good indication of how far the general panic had spread. But does it also hint at an expression of rivalry, perhaps even unconsciously, between the two seaside resorts? After April 1838, there seems to have been no new sightings of Spring-Heeled Jack in the country for several decades. A further spate of appearances occurred in London, Aldershot and Sheffield in the 1870s, and he was reported in Edinburgh and Liverpool in the following decades. He receded from memory in the first half of the 20th century, although the myth was revived by the growing ufology movement from the 1960s onwards. The memory of Spring-Heeled Jack is still occasionally invoked in reports of mysterious leaping figures such as this Surrey Comet story from February 2012. And if you'd like to read the story, there's a link to it in this article. Spring-Heeled Jack has never returned to Brighton since his encounter with the Round Hill Gardener. But Jack has left one legacy in our collections. Take a trip to the Wizard's Attic in Hove Museum. Take a look around the display cases. You will find boxes of spring-soled children's shoes called Spring-Heeled Jacks.
Some people can see their own hands waving in front of their faces while in total darkness. It shouldn't be possible, but a quirk of their senses allows these people to perceive movement without using their eyes. From the io9.com website, an article by Joseph Bennington Castro. The people who can see in pitch darkness. In 2005, Dujet Harden was working on a postdoc experiment with his mentor Randolph Blake, a psychologist who studies vision perception at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. For their research, the scientists needed a perfect blindfold. So they went online and purchased a black blindfold made of plastic. My mentor put it on and he tested it by waving his hand in front of his face and what he had was a sensation of a moving image, said Tarden, who is now a cognitive scientist in the University of Rochester in New York. Then I put it on my head, did the same thing and had the same sensation. No light reached their eyes but the researchers were somehow able to perceive the movement of their own hands in front of their faces. Why did they feel like they were seeing something when they obviously could see nothing? They wondered whether other people would also get the same visual sensation in the absence of visual input. They wanted to set up an experiment to test it, but that brought up a major problem. How do you objectively measure a subjective experience? Answering that question became Tarden's goal. If I just ask people if they see something, they might say yes, just because I'm asking them, Tarden told io9. This problem has been bugging me for years. A few years later, Tarden left Vanderbilt, joined the faculty in Rochester, and set his first graduate student, Kevin Dieter, to the task of devising a robust experiment to test how many people can see their hands without using their eyes. The researchers created a clever experiment which hinged upon expectations and deception. They coupled it with eye tracking technology. The result? They discovered that some people can indeed see their hand movements in total darkness. Almost a decade after their serendipitous discovery, Tarden, Blake and their colleagues have finally published their work showing that people really can visually perceive the movement of their own hands in total darkness. And here's how they do it. The researchers began by lying to study participants. They told subjects that they were investigating visual sensitivity to motion under low light conditions. They showed participants two blindfolds, one normal, the other with several dozen hole-like indentations, and told them that one blindfold would block all light, while the other might allow tiny amounts of light to pass through. In actuality, however, both blindfolds blocked out all the light. The team then conducted two trials with the blindfolds. The participants randomly put on one of the blindfolds but did not know which one they actually had. Cardboard stickers prevented them from feeling any indentations as they put on the blindfolds. With the blindfold on, the participants moved one of their hands from side to side in front of their faces, 
While they did this, they answered a series of questions that probed if they had any visual sensations and how vivid those sensations were, such as if they saw movement or any discernible shapes. Then they repeated the test with the other blindfold. This experiment played on the participants' expectations. In the first trial you had a faint sensation you'd think. The blindfold I got was the one with the holes, Tarden explained. So if you know you are getting a different blindfold, you'd expect to see nothing at all in the second trial. This means that if the participants couldn't actually see anything, and were just answering according to how they thought they should, their reports should follow along their own biases. If they say they see something in the first trial, then they should say they don't see anything in the second trial, and vice versa. But this isn't what happened. Approximately 50% of the participants reported visual sensations in the first trial. Most commonly they had a visual sensation with motion, which they described as a moving shadow. Less than half of these people reported visual sensations again in the second trial, showing that biases did come into play a little. However, all but one person who reported seeing something in the second trial also reported sensations in the first trial, suggesting that the visual perceptions were real. The researchers followed up with a second experiment that repeated the first, with just one alteration. They told the participants that they might get the same blindfold twice, negating any expectations. In this case, about 50% of the participants reported seeing something in both trials, though half of the participants said they saw something during the experiments, Tarden thinks the actual number may have been more than that. Afterwards, when we debriefed them, we had a number of people who said they saw something but thought they were just imagining it, he said. Tarden and his team suspected that this odd sight without light is the result of a kind of blending of the senses, kinesthetic and visual, where the actions of the body are somehow affecting how people perceive vision. We realise that essentially what synesthesia is, Tarden said. Synesthetes or people with synesthesia may taste numbers, smell words or hear colours, among other things. So the team decided to repeat their first experiment with a group of grapheme colour synesthetes, people who always associate letters and numbers with specific colours. The results were off the charts. All nine of the synesthetes experienced visual perceptions in both trials, even though they were led to believe they wouldn't see anything in the second trial. What's more, the images the synesthetes saw were more defined than the images the non-synesthetes saw. Instead of perceiving a faint shadow, they described something akin to an inverted pendulum, and some said they even saw fingers. The team then performed eye-tracking experiments on synesthetes and non-synesthetes. Research has shown that you can only have smooth eye movements from side to side if you are tracking an object. If you are not locked onto an object, your eye movements will be jerky. This is actually why physicians instruct patients to follow their finger, Tarden explained. If a patient shows nice eye movement, then the visual system is working correctly, Tarden said. 
If there's jerky eye movement, then there may be neurological problems. Tarden and his colleagues put the participants into a totally dark room and fitted them with eye-tracking cameras that use infrared light. They had the participants wave one of their hands in front of their faces again and told them to try and track their hands as best they could. The participants who reported being able to see motion had eye movements that were over twice as smooth as those who couldn't see any motion. Unsurprisingly, the synesthetes did far better than the non-synesthetes. We had one synesthete who gave us a perfectly smooth movement in darkness, Tarden said. Importantly, the participants could only see their own hands. In both the blindfold and eye-tracking experiments, the participants couldn't see the movement of another person's hand. The research suggests that our sensory systems really work together to create our perceptions. The visual system appears to take input from your movements to predict what you're about to see, Tarden said, adding that this ability may function to improve hand-eye coordination. It's not clear why some people could not see their hands in the dark. There's clearly something different in the brains of these people, Tarden said. You can speculate that maybe they have poorer hand-eye coordination. The researchers are now looking to do a similar study using older adults, hypothesising that they would do worse on these tasks because your hand-eye coordination decreases as you age. You have less connectivity between your senses. They also want to conduct experiments in the light to try to understand how the brain creates this cross-talk between the senses. The idea is to see how this works in natural vision, because most of us don't walk around with a blindfold on, Tarden said. How does the brain combine the action sense with the visual sense? The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast information site, www.origins.info. And remember, Origins is spelled O-R-I-G-I-N-Z. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast and what's happening, the latest updates, all that sort of information, don't forget we have a Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy, or just click on the Facebook link from the show notes. And I'd like to say a big thank you to these three people who have given the show a donation since the last Mysteries Abound podcast. George Tanch, Harold Mark Hughes and Matthew Erler. Thank you, everyone. Your help and support is greatly appreciated. And if you'd like to make a donation to the podcast, it's easy. It can be done through either of the two links on the homepage of the show notes. It's all done through PayPal, so it's safe and secure. And any donations I receive go towards the betterment of the podcast. New equipment, software, website hosting fees, all that sort of stuff. 
from the www.creepypasta.com website. A story that's credited to J.N. The Arcade. When I was in high school, my girlfriend and I would go to the mall a lot. It wasn't something I enjoyed very much, but it made her happy so I didn't complain. Every time we went, she would make us get our pictures taken in those photo booth things. You know, the ones where you put in two quarters or whatever and get a strip of pictures taken and printed off? It was a kind of ritual. She kept the best one from each visit in her locker. One time when we went, the booth was taped off. I guess someone thought it would be funny to use it to take nude photos of himself and then leave the strip in the booth. The parents of the little girl he went in next were not amused and the mall was going to be taking it out. I think that's an overreaction but expected nowadays. Well, my girlfriend was pretty sad about not being able to get our pictures taken, like usual. So we ended up just wandering aimlessly. She didn't really want to leave, but she didn't feel like shopping either. I bought us some ice cream, hoping it would cheer her up, but she was still pretty depressed. Eventually we ended up at the far end of the second floor. We almost never got over there, as there weren't many stores either of us were interested in. But today we did. I noticed that there was an arcade there, and that got me thinking. They tend to have a photo booth in them. I didn't want to say anything about that to avoid getting my girlfriend's hopes up, but I managed to convince her to go in. It was noisy inside, but mostly just from the games. There were only a few other kids inside, and the owner was sitting at a small desk watching some sports game on TV. We walked around the place and didn't see a booth. Saddened a bit, I suggested that we go, and she started to say that she agreed when her sentence drifted off. I looked where she was looking and tucked back in a corner there was a machine that said instantly developed photos peeking over one of the games. We nearly ran over to it but were disheartened to find that it too was taped off. My girlfriend was really sad now and suggested that we leave them all. I hated seeing her like this and I thought to myself you know what? Almost no one is in here, and none of them are paying attention to us. So I went over, plugged in the booth, and pulled the tape down. At first she was shocked that I would do that, but then the joy at being able to carry on our tradition overtook her. One thing that was incredibly obvious about this booth was that it was much older than the one that we usually went to. It was beaten up, didn't have a touch screen, and only cost 10 cents a strip. We decided to do a double strip since it would be cheaper than one of our normal ones. We put in two dimes and then it took our pictures. When the last one was done, we looked and saw that there wasn't a slot for them to be printed on the inside. It was odd, but I guess back when this thing was made, they didn't think to have them print on the inside. So we got out and looked at the sides of the booth and found the pictures. There wasn't much light inside the arcade, so my girlfriend picked them up, and we were walking outside to see them better, when we realised something. There was no sound anymore. All the games were running, 
but it was like someone hit the mute button on all of them. It creeped my girlfriend out, and I'll admit I was unnerved as well. So we walked towards the exit a little faster, but we couldn't find it. Every corner we took just led us to another row of arcade games with flashing lights and no sound. Now we were both panicking, but I managed to be rational enough to figure out that if I climbed on top of one of the machines, I would be able to get a view of the room. I went over to one and asked my girlfriend to give me a little support as I climbed it. I got on top and saw that somehow we had gone further into the arcade. The exit was on the other side. I told her and she calmed down a bit. I was trying to get down from the game when I thought something brushed my hand. I screamed and fell. My girlfriend tried to catch me, but I just knocked her into the machine and fell onto the floor. I wasn't hurt badly and got up to tell her I was sorry. When I turned to look at her, I saw she was staring at the screen and shaking. I walked over beside her and saw that it no longer was showing the menu. No, flashing in old-fashioned arcade game letters was the message, Player 2 has no more lives. I told her that I must have started a game when I climbed up, but she shook her head, no, and whispered, look around. Every game was flashing the same words. That really freaked us out, so we started running in the direction of the exit. We went around turns and turns of games, and it seemed we had been running far too long to have covered less distance than is contained in a shop in a mall. But now we could see it. Seven rows of games ahead, rising above the mall, was the exit sign. We stopped for a moment when we saw it, relieved and catching our breath. Then my girlfriend screamed. She spun around to look behind her and screamed that something had just touched her hair. We looked around, but we saw nothing. No one was near us. But there was something worse than the presence of someone else. The screen now all showed the words, Player One has no more lives. That was it. We were sprinting faster than we had ever done before, running towards the exit sign. We had to get around three more rows and we would be out of the arcade. And then we saw something that brought us to a halt. There was someone standing at one of the games. He was one of the kids we had seen earlier when we came in. I recognised the clothes, even though I hadn't paid much attention to him before. He was just standing there playing a game. After the shock of seeing someone else had passed, I thought I should call out to him. Hey, dude! My girlfriend grabbed my arm and shushed me. Don't, she whispered harshly in my ear. Why not? What's the matter? Something doesn't feel right. Let's just keep going. We're almost out. So we walked past him, hugging the other side of the rows of games. Something seemed wrong with him in the glow of the lights. I stopped walking and just looked at him. My girlfriend begged me to keep going, but I had to figure out what was wrong. I took a few steps closer and it hit me. His hands were on the controls. The game was playing, but he wasn't moving at all. I walked closer and closer. All the while my girlfriend was crying and begging for me to get back to her. I got to him 
and touched him on the shoulder and shivered from how freezing cold he was. I asked if he was okay and walked beside him to get a look at his face. His throat was slit and his skin was paper white. I screamed so loud and so intensely that I hurt my voice. I turned back to my girlfriend and started to run to her when I saw that someone was holding a hand over her mouth and a knife to her throat. I couldn't see the face, but the figure's hands looked like a man's. I shouted at him, let her go. The response was a laugh, deep and gurgling. I tried to lunge at him to get the knife away from her throat, but I wasn't fast enough. He slit her open in one fluid motion. Blood sprayed out all over me, and I was frozen in shock. He dropped her body and brought the knife to his face. I was still shrouded in darkness, but I saw a tongue come out and lick the knife. That tongue, it wasn't human. It looked more like a giraffe's, long and thin. I was crying now and couldn't think. Then he pointed at me and said, You wait here. You're next. That voice, it was horrible. It was like two rough stones being dragged across each other. But what came next was worse. He bent down to my girlfriend's body and started sucking at the fatal wound. His mouth covered her entire neck and it made a horrifying squelching sound as he sucked the blood from her. I couldn't think, couldn't react with anything but more tears and a sighing cry. And then the noises started to stop. He pulled back and his mouth was extended like a trunk and it began to pull back into his face. When it was back to normal, That tongue came out again and licked the traces of blood off his lips. He pulled the knife out again and started advancing towards me. Part of me wanted to let him kill me. I didn't want to live with these memories. But that part of my mind was overridden by a more primitive section. The adrenaline poured out into my body and I ran. I didn't even know what was happening anymore. I just ran. Somehow I managed to make it to the exit. As I ran, I saw the owner still sitting at his TV, now blank, and some still active part of my mind realised that his skin was far too pale and that there was a black line running along his neck. But I caught all of that in a few seconds before bursting out of the door and running into a woman outside of the arcade. I frantically screamed, begging her to call the police, the paramedics, anyone. She screamed too. At first I thought because I seemed crazy. Then I realised that I had blood all over me. My girlfriend's blood. Eventually security came and the woman told them that I had come from inside the arcade. One of them stayed with me and the other two went inside. They came back out and told the man with me to handcuff me while they contacted the police. What they had found was my girlfriend's body. Throat slit, drained of blood. This was expected. I had seen her die. What I didn't expect was that hers was the only one. Nor did I expect it to be found in the photo booth. But the worst part, the piece of evidence that I can never comprehend, the reason that my mind was broken to the point I was considered incompetent for trial, was that two strips of pictures were found in the booth with her. They showed me slitting her throat. Now I spend my days out of my mind on medication in a psych ward. But sometimes I trick them into thinking I took my medication so that I can think for a while. And I always think back to that day, 
and I have an idea about it. I think that sometime someone else will go into that arcade. They'll find it empty except the owner sitting there watching a sports game, a couple of kids playing games and a beautiful girl sitting alone in a photo booth. And I wonder, will this person ever leave the arcade? Well, everyone, that concludes the Mysteries Abound podcast, episode 83. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And until next time, whether it be Mysteries Abound or an Origins podcast, this is Paul saying bye for now and keep well, everyone.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.